Well, hello. Hey, hey, there he is. I just want to make sure you're there. The lights are really bright. And so, hey, my name is Jason. I'm the associate pastor of Community Life here on the Fountain Valley campus. Uh, Pastor Bill is not here with us this morning. He's preaching over at the HB campus. Um, So he sends his regards. And I'm so excited to be here with you this morning. Uh, I got to hang out with you about a month ago to kick off this series called The Art of Neighboring, where, where we're trying to get at this, uh, this call of Jesus and what it means in the great commandment where he says to love your neighbor as yourself. And I've been so encouraged by talking to so many of you of hearing the stories of, of kind of the, the cool things that are happening from you guys uh, filling out your neighbor map that's on the, the back side of, of your notes page, or, or even some of the stories that I've been seeing on social media about what you're doing with the skip jar, which has just been so cool to see the ways that God is just kind of raising the awareness of this true call that he has for us. And like I said, we're at about the halfway point of this series. And today, what we're going to try to get at is this idea of what it actually means to love our neighbors as ourselves. And if we're honest with ourselves this morning, it sounds a lot, uh, a lot easier to love ourselves than to love someone else with that same kind of love. Right? It sounds a lot easier. And I'm not sure <clears throat> if you've ever heard of this book. There's a great book called The Five Love Languages. And uh, <clears throat> some of you, your spouses, have been trying to get you to read it for a long time. Um, <clears throat> and the point of this book is really simple. It's to try to understand how people give and receive love. That's it. And if you've known me for more than like a week and you've read the book, you very easily can tell that my love language, the way I receive love, is through words of affirmation. For me, words of affirmation are key. I, you know, there's, there's four others, right? There's like acts of service and, you know, gifts and, and the rest. And I can go without the rest, Forever. I don't care if I have any of the others. But if I go without affirmation over long periods of time, I don't feel loved. Right? And, and the thing that I love about this book is the subtle thing that it teaches us. That love is an action. It's not a sentiment or a feeling. Although it can be accompanied, it'll accompany that. It's an action. Right? You can feel however you want about me. You can be like, oh man, I'm so upset with Jason. But if I won't sense that if you're just throwing words of affirmation my way. All I'll be like is, man, they love me so much, you know? And my wife, she has a different love language. And I have to remember that I can have this deep sense of love for her. But if I don't communicate that love with action that she wants to receive or that she, in a way that she receives it, she won't know that the feeling's there. And the truth is we're all like this, right? This isn't a phenomenon that is like particular to my wife and I alone. If I went throughout this room and surveyed each and every one of you and I asked you two questions, I said, um, tell me the name of someone you know that loves you. And you tell me that person's name. And then I ask you this question, how do you know that they love you? You would not give me a list of their deep feelings for you. You would give me a list of actions. You'd be like, oh, I just know how they feel about me and 67 actions, right? That's how it works, right? Love, <clears throat> love really is, I mean, it, it's, it's really this kind of this old, you know, saying, right? People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And the only way that they know that is through actions. 
Uh, and this really is the big idea this morning, the, the idea that kind of shapes and frames everything we do in here. And so I want to encourage you, reach inside your bulletins, grab the notes page out, uh, and take notes and follow along. You'll remember up to seven times uh, what you write down than what you simply listen to. The big idea really is the sermon in a sentence, and it's the first thing I want you to write down, and it's this, that we show true love through sacrifice. We show true love through sacrifice. Now, you'll notice on the screens, uh, we put this parentheses here. It's not in your notes. You can add it if you want. Because for us here at Beach Point, we believe that the essence of true love, uh, unashamedly, is God's love. And so we just wanted to be super clear about that. And we also believe that at the core of God's love is sacrifice. And, we, and, and even Matt said it, right, a few seconds ago as, uh, as he was leading in the hosting moment. As we sacrifice our time, our talents, our skills, and our treasures, our resources, people know how much we care. When, when they see that sacrifice, they see love with skin and bones, love in action. And the passage we find ourselves today is all about this idea. It's all about this idea that love is an action, not a sentiment alone. The idea that we can love a person, but no one would ever know how we feel if it wasn't accompanied by some sort of sets of, uh, of actions or sacrifice. And with that in mind, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles or your, or your Bible app on your mobile device to 1 John chapter 3. Um, if you want to reach out and grab the Bible in front of you, it's on page 1230 in, in those Bibles. Um, you know, <clears throat> as you're turning there, I kind of want to set the scene I always try to remind you guys, right, the Bible is written to real people in real places, with real, in real times, with real problems. And today, John is, is continuing a theme of his, right? All throughout his gospel and his letters, he has this theme. And the theme is love. Over and over again, it's the deep, stubborn, jealous, binding love that God has for us. Uh, and the, the word that we, that we use in the scriptures for it, or the word that it is in Hebrew, is this hesed love, right? It refers to this idea that God binds himself to us, stubbornly will not let go, jealous for our affection, right? It's the love that goes beyond sentiment that we are to display for one another and, on for, and for the world, right? And for the first 15 verses, John has been painting a contrast. He's been painting a picture like that says, look, there's there's really two ways you can paint the picture of love here. The first way is uh, the, 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 the character is Cain. If you know who Cain is, he's, a, he's the brother of Abel in the book of Genesis. And he says that, the, that you can have a Cain-type love. Um, Cain murdered his brother, so he's obviously really into him. And, um, and then on the other side of the story is the love of Jesus, right? He's, he paints the, he's this contrasting picture, right, of the self-serving love of Cain and the sacrificial love of Jesus, right? The, the, the love that desire, desires to receive something and the love that desires to give something. The love that desires status in Cain and the love that desires service in Jesus. John is essentially saying that we will ultimately have a love that's like Cain's or like Jesus's. And he says, though, the, the greatest thing about it is that he says, it's not about what you do, it's about where you begin. And so with that in mind, I want to read, <clears throat> read along with you, and starting in verse 16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. 
If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. See, John is, is kind of, he's laying out a standard of, of how we can even know what love is, right? And it's not the self-serving heart of Cain, but the suffering servant heart of Jesus, right? That, that's on display in his life. He's giving us essentially a measurement, right? Jo- John is essentially saying, hey, here's what I want you to do. He's like the teacher, right? He's like, take out a piece of paper and draw a line down the middle to make two columns, on the one side, what I want you to do is I want you to write all the characteristics and actions and sentiments of Jesus. And then on the other side, I want you to write all the characteristics and actions and sentiment of yourself. And he says, if they match, you're set. If they don't match, you're missing the mark of love. Now, this is a pretty big call, right? He, John is essentially saying that, that true love has a name, and it's Jesus. And it's not this ambiguous, ethereal, difficult-to-define thing, like, well, who can really define love? Like, nobody really knows what love actually is. Like, maybe love's different for me than it is for you. Right? John's saying, that's ridiculous. You can see love right there. Just look at him. Look at his life. He's saying it's It's simple. True love, God's love, is the person of Jesus. Right now, I'm not saying that, that it's not messy or hard or never-ending or frustrating or annoying. But I am saying that it's simple to define. It's simply Jesus and how he lived. He lived out of his love, and so everything he did was love. Now, while this idea is so big, and we could, you know, we could spend forever, just unpacking all the things that are in this, uh, these few verses and, and this idea of this love that Jesus has. And uh, we just don't have the time. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to give you kind of two big, broad brushstrokes of the painting that, or the picture rather that John's trying to paint to give you kind of some handles so you can begin the conversation for yourself and, and so the, the first kind of broad brushstroke that John is trying to say when it comes to what is this true love, and this is the next thing I want you to write down, it's this, that love is giving yourself for the good of others. Love is giving yourself for the good of others. <clears throat> Remember, right, Jesus didn't call us to like a state farm kind of life, like a good neighbor, you know, like... Um, <clears throat> He's not calling us to that kind of neighborly, right? He's not calling us to a, being a good neighbor, right? We feel that sense of obligation. Any of you that have ever like moved into your own place, you know like there's this sense of like, oh, now I got to be like a good neighbor to these people. Are they going to be good neighbors? You know, that's kind of the duty that you have when you move in. Jesus isn't calling you to that. He's, he isn't calling me to that. He's calling us to be loving neighbors, Right? As I've already said, love is this essential theme to John. It comes up over and over and over again. And the reason it does is because John wants to make sure that you, went from the second you start living the life that God's calling you to live, that you start from the right motive. Because so many of us, if we're honest, are destined to fail to live the life God has for us because we begin in the wrong starting place. 
We begin with the wrong motive, right? The gracious work of God is driven by the deep, stubborn, jealous love that he has for us. This Hesed love. It's not driven by our sin. Now, it's directed toward our sin, toward our shame, toward our guilt. But it's not fueled by it, right? I want to show you a picture of my boy. Here's my boy. There's Finn. Yep, there he is. And uh, he's my boy. We're at Snow Monster there. And so he's my firstborn. I love him so much. If it's between you and him in a burning building and I can only save one of you, enjoy heaven. Um, Great knowing you. Uh, you know, I'm just not saving you. That's all there is to it. You know, I tell Finnegan I love him at least a hundred times a day. I tell him all the time. You know, I love both my kids this way. But now imagine me telling you all this. Imagine me telling you all the things I do for him. And, and imagine instead that I look at him and say, you know, Finn, it's a good thing that I love you because you are so terrible. I mean, honestly, Finn, you are so lucky to have someone like me in your life who loves you because you are so bad. First of all, at least one person in this room should just straight up punch me in the face, okay, as your pastor. That's, it's in love. It's in Jesus' name. And so, you know, you should do that. That's terrible parenting, right? You would think, man, who would ever do that? Now, let me ask you this question. Let me flip the script. How often do we do that? When we think about God's love for us, we say God is love and grace and mercy and kindness. But yet, how often do we really mean it's a good thing he's so gracious and loving and kind because of me? Or that God is gracious to us because he loves us. Not so that he can regularly remind us, hey, I'm going to forgive you. And it's a good thing you've got someone like me on your side to let you off the hook of my wrath. Right? How often is that the fuel? Is that the way we envision God's love? Right? Certainly the Bible helps us understand that sin leads to separation, that leads to death. Of course, but the emphasis again and again, not just in John, but all throughout the scriptures, is of the deep love of God. One of my Old Testament professors, uh, as I was doing my master's program, who's helped translate your NLT, NIV, NASB, and ESV, um, so he's kind of smart and, um, he's like 700 years old and, uh, seriously, I think he has the ring of power. And, um, uh, he, <clears throat> he said, if there's one theme from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, it's one word, Hesed, the, dub, the stubborn, binding, jealous love of God. That's the theme of the Bible. That's the emphasis Right? Notice where John places the emphasis. It's super cool. Uh, there's, this, there's this thing going on that I want to kind of let you in on. This, this chapter, this section, is kind of like this like, eruption, like this burst into kind of an otherworldly moment for John. It's kind of like this God moment. Look at where he begins in, in, in verse 1. We'll throw it up on the screen. It says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. Now, commentators across the board are astounded by this moment in the text because up until this moment, in the first two chapters, John has had a pretty consistent style of writing. He's used a pretty consistent verb structure. And up till here, or up at this point, he kind of has this like God moment. And the style drastically changes. The verb tenses change. Everything's out of whack. The translation that we have in the NIV, if some of you have like the ESV or the, the, the King James, it actually says... Look, or behold. 
And it's this kind of idea that, like, it's not like, hey, look over there, or hey, behold this over there, right? It, there's, a, there's an exclamation mark. It's like John is saying, wait a minute! What are those? It's like he's, he's just, look at that! What, what is that? Behold that! What an unearthly love that the Father has lavished on us. Right, this idea of lavish, it's like to pour over, to cover. What a love. Right, this, this moment in literary terms, it's kind of like so, like Pastor Matt or, or Sam or Sandra or Alicia or Brian or, or you know, uh, whoever, the other amazing, talented musicians that are up here leading. It's like when they're singing a song and they get to that part that's kind of a transition and for us in the audience, it's instrumental. And then all of a sudden, one of them's like, your love is good, you know? And you're out in the audience, you're like, good. You know, you don't, you don't really know what to do. You don't really know how to, to enter into it, you know? Because the, whoever's leading is so captured. They're just, they're so captured by the idea of whatever it is that they're singing. They're, they're, they're like, look! It's kind of like that moment. That's what's happening in this chapter in John. He's like, wait, wait, wait. I have got to stop. You've got to understand. I was having my quiet time this morning, and I saw something. And I want you to see it. For those of you... In this room, I, I just want you to just pause for, for just a second. I mean, can you just take a second and try to... I know I've had like 30 hours in trying to like write this sermon and think through it, and you've only had like 15 minutes of listening to me. But will you just pause for a second and say, the God of the universe who could easily desire to think you out of existence, instead says, I desire to lavish you with a love unlike anything you've ever understood or known. That's what I want your life to be about. And that right there, that sense, for those of you who are able to do that right there for that second, that's what John is saying. Look at that! That's crazy! We are his children. See, if you try to live out of duty or obligation or a sense of like, moral um, conviction, like I'm so bad, so I've got to do these good things. You'll, you'll find out very quickly, if you haven't ever done this, you'll find out very quickly that guilt and shame and fear and appeasement is never a strong enough motive to bring about real change. And I believe, by the way, that God made us this way to remind us every time we try to live out of something other than his love, he says, look, I told you it's not going to work. Come back. This is better. This is way better. I made you for this. I bound myself to you for this. See, God wants his love to transform us from the inside out so that we might be reflectors of that love to others. The Christian life is an imitation of Christ. Paul says that in our attitudes, we should have the same mindset as Jesus did towards one another. Peter says to keep in step with Jesus uh, later in this letter and in another part, John says to walk as Jesus did. All throughout the New Testament, it's this idea of imitating the way Jesus did it. And in John in verse 16 brings out the goal of that. Imitation is to give yourself away for the good of others, not for your self-service, not so you look good, but so others know this deep love. It can't be for ourselves. But we also see that to be like Christ, to live out of his love, it's more than a feeling. True love, right, love, true love, okay, is, uh, is accompanied, of course, by feeling and sentiment. 
but it's experienced through action. And it's experienced, as we said in our big idea, ultimately through sacrifice. And this is the next thing I want to encourage you. This is the next kind of big brush stroke that John's uh, painting with. And it's this, that love is revealed through tangible actions. Love is revealed through tangible action. When someone makes a decision to follow Jesus, they may not know it at the time, but the ultimate thing that they're pledging themselves to is a life of love. As John notes later in this letter and in his gospel, that our love for our fellow Christians confirms that our faith in Christ is real. To belong to God is to care for those in need and to demonstrate the uniqueness of Jesus' upside-down kingdom where the last are first and the lowest are the highest and the, hum- the humble are raised. Right? Faith and love belong together in the Bible, right? We've seen this week after week in this series, right? You can't, we started out, you can't have love for God without having a love for neighbor. They're mutual. They can't exist without one another. Galatians 5, 6 sums it up this way, right? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. This is how Paul sums it up. The love of God we are to imitate and to live out of is a love that gives without concern of receive of receiving. And I just want to, I just want to like, there was a commentator who said it so much better, so I just want to read what he wrote, um, and, uh, and hopefully it'll, it'll be good for you, as good for you as it was for me. We'll throw it up on the screen. It is a love that gives without counting the cost, without any thought of return, without first weighing up whether or not such a love is deserved, a love that is entirely without self-interest. It is the nature of God's love to give, just as it is the nature of the sun to shine. And that love is the mark of a faith that is real. Right, you see, John's doing something important here. Right, he's asking a fair question. He's saying, essentially, if, you, if we can't or won't live, or excuse me, love like Christ, isn't it fair to wonder if the love of Christ is actually in us? He's asking you and I to examine ourselves, to ask ourselves, is there a genuineness to my faith if my faith doesn't reveal itself through loving, sacrificial action. To think of it another way, to think of it in light of the great commandment, what we're dealing with in this series, right? Isn't it fair to ask, does my, does my love of God show up in my love of neighbor? See, without actions, our faith appears to be one thing and one thing only. Hypocrisy. And he gives us this test. Do I see my brother in need? Do I have the ability to help? And do I do it? See, because he's saying, if, if you see your brother or sister in need, and you have the ability to help, and you choose not to have compassion, you know, the NIV translates it pity, have compassion on them, then what you choose is to walk away from Christ just as much as you're walking away from that person. Not in the sa- saving type way, but you're but you're choosing, hey, there's the need of Christ that I can meet, and I'm choosing to walk away from it. John is essentially asking, if that's our pattern, how can we say we've ever experienced the love of the God who sees us hurting and, and on the side of the road and always stops to pick us up? See, God's love is revealed as authentic in us through tangible actions. God rescued the world with an action. He sent his son. 
Jesus demonstrated the love of God through an action, through dying for sinners like me. And now we who are filled with that same love are invited to let that love rule our hearts and express itself in our communities and around the world. As we talked about in the first week, though, when we try to love everyone, we're like, I'm going to go love everyone. Usually what happens is we don't love anyone, right? We end up loving a metaphorical people, everyone, with a metaphorical love. I love everyone. No, you don't. You don't even know everyone. You don't give to everyone. You don't live a life of love for everyone. So John is saying, hey, tangible ways, just like Jesus tangibly showed his love. And, and I want to give you a way this morning that you invite you into a story this morning of a way that you can maybe enter in to living out that life of love even before you leave uh, this morning, the campus this morning. As Satch talked about in the hosting piece, um, the, we're inviting you to come alongside an organization called Hope for the Future. Um, Rose Sakuda, she's, she, she's not here right now. She's over at our Huntington Beach campus. Um, she started this organization. I think Henry's somewhere in here. Um, maybe he's the chief. He's, uh, but they're just like you. They're beach pointers. But their story's a little different, right? You grew up in Huntington Beach, Fountain Valley, Long Beach, Santa Ana, whatever, Garden Grove, somewhere around here. They grew up a little further away in a place called Kenya. Okay? They didn't grow up um, in, a, in a community, in a track home, or an apartment complex. They grew up in a tribal community, and the particular tribe was called the Maasai people. And in this particular group, there was a part of the culture that Rose grew up with that she knew was wrong. And that part of the culture is the mutilation and forced marriages of young girls to older men. See, girls at the age of 12 are presented to the witch doctor for the mutilation ceremony. And then after that ceremony, they're forced to be married to a man anywhere between twice as old, up to four times as old as they are. And the reason is, is because it comes out of this, this uh, superstition that if a man who is infected with HIV or AIDS sleeps with a younger, pure girl, he will transmit the disease to her and no longer have it. So the whole reason that they're getting married is for the man to get rid of something. Not for him to know that little girl, not for him to care about that girl, not for him. That, that girl has no personhood, no identity, no place, no, no purpose. And really, as the, as the title of the organization suggests, no hope. Rose felt this distinct call from God to change the world in the way that she saw it needed to change. And so she began to, to just simply hear God and do what he's asking. And so one girl rescues one girl from this cycle, and then another, and another, and another, and another. And years go on for her to ultimately develop something so much bigger than she ever dreamed when she was just saying that one little yes to God, this organization called Hope for the Future. It has radically altered the futures of these girls. The girls are fed, protected, and they're given opportunities to attend school. Now, when I asked Rose, Rose, is education the single greatest 
factor in changing a girl's future in the Messiah community, she said only one word. Absolutely. It's the single greatest factor. And, and not only this, not only has, she, has this started and this, this sort of stuff been taking place in the Maasai community, but she's seen through her work and the work of those with the organization, many come to a saving relationship with Jesus. Everyone from the girls themselves who are being rescued to their families to the tribal chiefs, which are kind of like, we could kind of think of them like um, the mayor. They're like the mayors of their tribe. Um, and even some, excuse me, one of the witch doctors who are the biggest proponent of the mutilation and, and uh, forced marriage ceremony has come to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ because one person said, I'm going to show love through tangible actions through one yes. Yes, absolutely, whoever said that. Not only does hope for the future help these girls, but they also feed widows and orphans in the community. This is an organization that we as a faith community, as all of Beach Point have been supporting through the general offering for some time now, that we're asking you to join in in a more personal, more tangible way this month. Every weekend on the patio, they're going to be highlighted. We believe, the reason we're calling you to this is because we believe that if, if Beach Point had kind of an 8 to 15, like if we all had our 8 to 15, which is language that we use here that's like a, a group of people that God supernaturally and strategically placed in our life to make a big difference. Rose came from Kenya, which is a little bit of ways, and landed here. There's 50 states. From what I've seen as I drive, there's churches on every corner. And yet she's here. If that isn't supernatural and strategic placement for us as Beach Point to come along, I don't know what is. Right? We believe in it so much. And today we want, we want to present the opportunity for you to join God in his mission through Hope for the Future in one of three ways. And they're really simple. The first way is to consider a one-time donation for the widows and orphans. This goes to feed the widows and orphans in the different communities. It's not just the Maasai people, but it's also communities surrounding them. The second way, there's 18 girls that needs sponsoring to attend school. We'd, we'd ask you to consider a monthly donation to get one of those girls education and food. You can go in as a life group. You can go in as a family. You can even use your skip jar for this. It's a fantastic possibility, right? The last one is uh, the ability to purchase jewelry made by the widows to empower them to support themselves. I, I don't know how God may stir in your heart to, to partner with this community or th this opportunity, but please just stop by the table because here's the truth. What I have just told you is literally the 10 cent version of a $100 story that you all need to hear. Stop by the table and hear the story. It'll change your life. You'll see the love of God on display and you'll say that's how life is meant to be lived right there. And the truth is, by the way, that, that, true, that that's been true from the very beginning. In Deuteronomy, all the way back in the beginning of the Old Testament, when God's laying down the law for the nation of Israel, we'll throw it up here on the screen. It says this, If anyone is poor among you or your fellow Israelites is in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. See, there has always been an expectation that the people of God 
would care for those in their communities and those that they have the ability to care for outside of them and thus reveal to the nations the beauty of God's love that he lavishes on us. Right? The nations were, back when Deuteronomy was written, and are today in 21st century supposed to see the way we love and care for the people around us and say there's something different about that way. And I want to know what it is. And Jesus even told us this, right? When people see your love, they'll see me. As the church began to live out their calling of love post-Jesus, the, the communities began to take notice. We're told by about 250 AD from the historian Eusebius that the church was taking care of 1,500 people's needs, which I know sounds like a very small number to us because we live in a city with either, you know, 50,000 people or, you know, uh, 200,000 people in Huntington Beach. But 1,500 people in this kind of community is huge. And about 100 years later, the, the, one of the, la- the last Roman emperor named Julian, he wanted to go back to the glory days of Rome where the pagan gods were worshipped and the emperor was worshipped as a god. And the problem was there was these little pockets of people called Christians that were ruining everything. Look at what he says about them. He, he notes this. He says, they not only take care of their own poor, but ours as well. And here was his plan. It's fantastic. You've never heard anything like this. So the government came up with a plan to make social programs to care for the needy, to house the sick, and social ways to feed the poor, social programs to feed the poor. You've never heard an idea ever like this before in your lives. Okay? And they came up, and the, the emperor came up with this, and here's what happened. Do you know what happened? It's the coolest thing ever. They all failed. You know why? Because the Christians were doing it better. They looked empty compared to the way that the followers of Jesus did it. And they didn't need a program. They just needed a master. Listen to the Baylor sociologist Rodney Stark as he concludes his book, The Rise of Christianity. He says, therefore, as I conclude this study, I find it necessary to confront what appears to me to be the ultimate factor in the rise of Christianity. The simple phrase, for God so loved the world, would have puzzled an educated pagan. And the notion that the gods care about how we treat one another would have dismissed, would have been dismissed as a patently absurd idea. This was the moral climate in which Christianity taught that mercy is one of the primary virtues, that a merciful God requires humans to be merciful. This was revolutionary stuff. That's, how he, that's the last words of his book about how Christianity took off. This was revolutionary stuff. Friends, it is still revolutionary stuff. Do you honestly believe that your small relational world, your 8 to 15 people that you have influence on would not be radically changed if you lived a life of complete sacrifice for their good? Do you honestly believe that they wouldn't take note of who it was that you were following? See, I believe 
that the sacrificial hearts of God's people fueled not by guilt or shame or obligation, but by the deep, lavishing love of the Father could change and turn the hearts of the city. It could turn everything, but at first, that love has to capture you. He gave everything for you. Let that fill your heart to the brim. Let it overflow. Let it define your life's work, purpose, and worth. Because when it does, you will give everything for him. Maybe it's partnering with Hope for the Future. Maybe it's your neighbors. Maybe, maybe on your neighbor map, you know one of your neighbors that has an immediate need that you can meet. Maybe it's a coworker at work that just needs your time and maybe a listening ear. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your kids. I don't know what God is calling you to do, to live out this tangible, sacrificial love. But whatever it is, however it is, whoever it is, when you and I can allow the deep, binding, hesed, jealous, stubborn, sacrificial love of the Father to define every fiber of our being, the world will see something real, something true, something that it longs for. And I believe that you, not me, you, the pastor of your 8 to 15, will change the world. I'm going to pray. The band's going to come up. And we're going to sing. And I'm going to ask you as I pray to just allow this idea, God, what is it that you're calling me to today? How are you calling me to join you in your mission? God, may we see how deep your love is for us. May we know in our bones, God, that you are for us. May we behold, may we look at how great and caring and loving of a father we have. And may you direct our steps as we seek.